last August, um, <clears throat> about a year ago, as we celebrated our church's 225th anniversary, it brought to mind many precious and personal memories of events and especially of uh, certain people that were associated with those events. The building of the parsonage, of course, was a predominant focal point in my reminiscing. And during those days, when we built that parsonage, that the Lord brought a particular person into my life by the name of Earl Flagg, with whom I developed a respectful and very close relationship. And as I have reflected on those good times, even recently, again, the Lord impressed upon me to visit a text that worked its way into my preaching during those days, back in the early 90s. In fact, during that building project, Earl repeatedly used a phrase that became so ingrained in me that I used it to introduce one of my messages back then. Recently, at one of my weekly family lunch gatherings at my mom's house, now you got to know, i got a big family. For those of you that don't know, I'm one of ten, the oldest. And we all get together at my mom's house for lunch every Sunday. And uh, so we were there a couple of weeks ago, and one of my brothers who used to attend this church actually pulled that phrase that Earl used to say out of, out of his memory banks, and I haven't been able to shake it since he mentioned it. It's especially apropos in light of this week's shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder local outreach. So in honor of Earl and in the spirit of Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God, let your ears hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Don't use bent nails. I must have heard it repeated a hundred times, if not a thousand. What once echoed around the walls of that Parsonage building project now echoes again in my memory. Don't use bent nails. Why? They're weak. They don't hold as well. They'll bend twice as easy the second time around. Use the straight ones, the perfect ones. That's what Earl would say. Now, there's something incredibly prestigious about good quality control, isn't there? It's impressive. The world looks at a job well done and using the strongest and possibly the best materials and draws a breath of approval. We've done it with no warped boards, no split studs, and no bent nails. It lends an air of stability, strength, power. However, as I compare the way the world builds a house with the way God builds the church, I'm faced with a huge paradox. The amazing thing to me is that throughout the Bible, when God sets out to build something of strength and stability, i.e. his church, he straps on his tool belt and he fills the pockets with, you guessed it, bent nails. It seems that he rarely goes to the brand new box of perfectly straight ones. Instead, he moves around the job site and he scrounges up all the bent ones he can find, the weak ones. And moreover, it often seems that the more twisted and bent, the better. He then proceeds to hammer them out until they're somewhat straight, and then he uses them to hold that building together. In fact, it's been my experience that if he happens upon a seemingly straight nail, he usually bends it first. 
and then realigns it again before he attempts to use it in the building. Strange, you might say, but nevertheless true, right? Why? Because there is a principle involved that is completely beyond our typical way of thinking. It's an idea that is truly out of this world. The power of God is magnified when it is filtered through the weakness of people. And let me take it one step further than that. The weaker the person, the greater the magnification. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, beginning there, just as a, an illustration of this. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. The wonder of the gospel is that God uses wackos and weirdos and woefully inadequate weaklings to accomplish his unimaginable purposes on this earth and for his kingdom. The principle is simple, it's understandable, and yet I wonder if we've really considered the application of that to our own lives. Every one of us in this room is a bent nail, aren't we, of sorts? But how many of you really believe in your heart that God can be magnified through you? You believe that? How many of you have ever considered that the overwhelming weakness which you believe is keeping you from God's service may be the very thing that God wants to filter his power through in order that he might be glorified? So what we need is a transformed perception of what our weakened, imperfect, bent nail lives can become when they are placed in the hands of the master carpenter. Every one of us has a weakness, probably more than one, which we are absolutely convinced will prevent us from being used by God. You want to know what? You're in very good company. Almost all the people that God has ever used mightily in the scriptures were convinced of exactly the same thing. Think about it. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was a barren old woman. Moses had a speech impediment. Rahab was a prostitute. David was a simple shepherd boy. Jephthah was the illegitimate son of a harlot. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. Timothy was, well, timid. And yet God used every single one of them powerfully. In fact, read about it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 what more shall I say? The writer says, For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness 
they were made strong. The fact is that all of them were bent nails, just like us, just like you, just like me. And what they needed and what we need is what Paul the Apostle wrote about in today's passage. We need a transformed perception. And if anyone knew about the weakness of man and the power of God, it was the Apostle Paul because he's well qualified to speak on the subject. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where we're going to camp out. Let me give you a little background here of this letter. The last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, chapters 10 through 13, as a whole, has been called one of the most emotionally charged texts Paul ever wrote. It is in these four chapters that he pours out his soul in response to vicious attacks against his character and his ministry. His enemies questioned his apostolic authority his integrity, his loyalty. They questioned his leadership ability and even his love for them. Many of the Corinthians themselves actually turned on Paul and held great animosity toward him. One writer has said that this may have been, quote, the greatest single barrage of abuse that Paul ever received in his life, unquote. That's pretty serious. Now, even though he endured unequaled hardships in the ministry, the greatest pain probably came to Paul from the people that he loved the most. He experienced rejection, betrayal, criticism, false accusations, distrust, even hate. And Paul wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians as a man rejected, unloved, unappreciated, misunderstood, and deeply grieved within his soul. Get the picture of what he's feeling? And all of us can relate to that to some extent, can't we? These circumstances put Paul in a perfect place to learn an incredible lesson about God's sufficiency. And if anyone could have used human weakness as an excuse not to serve Christ, Paul could have at this point in his life. Yet he communicates to us in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, a principle which is timeless and extremely applicable to you and to me on a personal level. And it's this, our overwhelming weakness can be transformed by God's overwhelming power and his overwhelming grace. The overwhelming weakness of man is transformed by the overpowering grace of God. My grace, God says, is sufficient for you. Paul learned that what we need is not necessarily to have our problems transferred, but our perception transformed. 2 Corinthians 12, let me read this text to you that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul viewed his weaknesses, his thorn in the flesh, from an entirely different vantage point after he came to terms with God's sufficiency. How much do you suppose that you and I could learn from him? Enough to transform your perception? I see at least four areas where Paul's perception was transformed here in this text. And if we can get a hold of them, I believe we will experience some life change a metamorphosis in our own lives and service to Christ as well. And the first thing that we need to see is this. We need a transfer perception of God's purpose for pain. Verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, whether it's physical or emotional, personal or spiritual, all of us go through times of pain, don't we? The question that is always on our lips when we're undergoing that kind of suffering is this. Why? Why am I afflicted with these problems? Why this? Why me? Why now? Why, why, why? Our understanding is especially critical in the church when a very popular teaching of the day today is that if you are really a child of God operating in the will of God, you will have no pain, you will have no problems, you will have no worries, you will have no pressures. Whenever I hear that kind of teaching, I want to vomit. What do they do with a passage like this? The answer is that they butcher it. Is Paul out of God's will? Is the reality and authenticity of Paul's conversion under question here? The truth of the matter is that Paul viewed his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan, but allowed by God. Don't miss that. He even understood the purpose for it. What's it say there? To keep me from exalting myself. God allowed this messenger of Satan so that he would not be driven in his ministry by pride. Now, without question, Paul was privileged to have received direct revelations from God. That's what the context is indicating here. Not many people could claim that, nor would they even dare in those days. But Paul could have exploited that fact. He could have gotten himself a Learjet and gone all over the, all over the world, given that testimony all over the place and made all kinds of money doing it. But God, operating out of his grace, wouldn't allow that to derail him. He realized that this thorn he had been given by God to suppress that tendency that we all have to become conceited and overwhelmed with pride. Oh, God spoke to me, right? Now we've all heard the expression thorn in the flesh before, right? You've heard it, probably used it. And many people, most people think of it as a, some weakness or annoying problem that constantly aggravates us as a splinter in our finger or a pebble in our shoe. 
that aggravating, annoying, irritating thorn in the flesh. But that's not what the word actually means in the original language. The Greek word for thorn here it refers to a stake. A sharpened wooden staff that was used primarily for torturing or impaling someone. That's far different than a little thorn, isn't it? This was no splinter that plagued Paul. This was a stake expressly designed to impale and kill Paul's pride. The verse literally could read like this. There was given me a stake driven into my body to pierce my flesh. Rather than viewing it as something to hinder his ministry, Paul saw the allowance of it as a gift of God to keep him humble. Notice the purpose emphasized twice in this verse to keep me from exalting myself. He calls this thorn a messenger of Satan to buffet me, some of your translations say. The word buffet literally means to constantly beat with a fist. You know what he's saying? The messenger was literally sent to beat him up. Yet regardless of the fact that it was a messenger of the enemy, Paul always viewed the situations in his life through the lens of God's sovereign perspective. Constantly aware that God always works all things for good and discerning the providential care of God in his life, Paul understood that although Satan would attempt to use this weakness to short-circuit his ministry, God would empower him in his weakened state to enhance the ministry. Some years ago, I played a, a video clip of another bent nail personality, a man by the name of David Ring. And I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with him or his ministry or not from years ago, which absolutely astounded all of us who saw that clip. He was born with cerebral palsy. His speech is slurred. His movements are uncontrolled. But his words are from God. And his heart is on fire with the Holy Spirit's power. He is a bent nail of the first degree, yet God has used and is still using him to build the kingdom in a way that builds strength and stability to people's lives all over the world. Can you imagine? No one would deny that God's power is perfected in that man's weakness. David's hallmark cry reminds me that God is in the business of using our weakness for his glory. David Ring says this, he's famous for it. I have cerebral palsy, he says. What's your problem? <laughs> I like that. What is the stake that impales you? What weaknesses are you allowing Satan to have victory in your life? What was it for the Apostle Paul? He doesn't say here. Countless suggestions have been offered over the centuries. A recurring physical afflictions such as epilepsy maybe, malaria, chronic ophthalmia, eye problems, migraines, or even a speech impediment. All kinds of suggestions have been made. Many of the Latin fathers thought it to be a problem with lust. 
Other scholars have offered that it was a person or a group of people that dogged Paul's steps everywhere he went, attacking his character and ministry. Unfortunately, every single one of these suggestions is a speculation. There is no way to know what it was. And I am personally convinced that God left it unidentified for a purpose. Why? Because we are better able to relate to Paul because all of us have something that impales us, don't we? We all struggle with weakness. The question is, and this is a good question to ask ourselves, are we using ours as an excuse not to minister for Christ? Do you see your weakness as an obstacle to your work for God or an opportunity for God's work through you? That's the upshot of it all, friends. What's your thorn in the flesh? Have you ever looked at it as something allowed by God? Because you and I need a transformed perception concerning the purpose of pain in our lives. That's number one. Number two is we need a transformed perception of God's answer to prayer. Verses 8 and 9. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Let's just stop there. What's the first thing you pray for when you have a problem? Is it the first thing I pray for? Lord, please take this thing away from me. Please take it away. Am I right? Or am I all alone dying up here? <laughs> of course, everybody says that. To some extent, deliver me, relieve me, fix me, comfort me, make it go away. That's the natural reaction. Don't worry. Again, you're in good company. Jesus prayed three times that the cup of suffering would be removed from him. Do you remember that? This is Jesus in Mark chapter 14. Paul begged on at least three occasions that this affliction would depart. How many times have you prayed? For something that's in your life that plagues you. Paul's first reaction here, it seems, wasn't to go to a therapist. Wasn't to go to a self-help group, a seminar, a 12-step program, or a Christian bookstore. He went directly to God. Right? Now, nothing wrong with those other things necessarily. They can be very helpful. But ultimately, we must begin with the real source of our strength, and that's Jesus Christ. That's where we begin. He wants us to look at him first when we need help, but so often he's the last one on the list, isn't he? Any, any, any pastors in this audience, and I know there are, it's a rhetorical question, especially ones that do counseling. And you get the call, Pastor, can I come in for counseling? And they got a whole laundry list of problems, right? Good friend of mine, it's a pastor, he used to say, Well, let me ask you this question first. Have you prayed about it? Well, no. Well, you talk to God first, then come see me. See, that was Paul's reaction. So often, God's the last one, right, on the list. An old preacher by the name of Alexander McLaren wrote that Paul's petitions are the echo of Gethsemane. Fact is, the affliction drove Paul to his knees, precisely where God wanted him. Addressing the one who knows exactly where and how we hurt, Jesus, the great physician. 
Paul learned something there about prayer that he could only learn from Christ. F.W. Robertson relates it well. He says, the true value of prayer is not to bend the eternal will to ours, but to bend ours to it. On July 30th, 1967, no one could have known that in the midst of an unthinkable tragedy, God would be at work transforming the life of a young, energetic teenager. In the flash of just a few seconds, a slender, attractive girl full of life and vigor dove into the cool waters of Chesapeake Bay and was pulled out, a quadriplegic, totally paralyzed from the neck down. In what seemed like a vapor of time, her entire life was transformed from a state of vitality and independence to an existence of total helplessness and complete dependence. In the preface of her first book, Johnny Erickson Tata wrote these words. Quote, Oscar Wilde wrote, In this world there are only two tragedies. One is not getting what one wants. The other is getting it. To rephrase his thought, I suggest there are likewise these two joys. One is having God answer all your prayers. The other is not receiving the answer to all your prayers. I believe this because I have found that God knows my needs infinitely better than I know them. And he is utterly dependable no matter which direction our circumstances take us. Unquote. Here's someone who knows what she's talking about. She prayed for new hands and new feet. She prayed for the removal of the stake that impaled her, and it never, ever happened. To this day, 51 years later, she's still paralyzed. Perhaps, however, she learned precisely what Paul learned and what you and I must somehow grasp, that God doesn't always give you what you want, but he always and ever grants us exactly what he knows we need. Because he knows what's best. The impact of Johnny's ministry has reached the entire globe hundred times over. Are you a student in that classroom today? Are you struggling with some very painful lessons? Maybe it's exam time for you today. And you are wrestling with some very difficult test questions like, how long do I have to live with this illness? How long do I have to put up with an unbelieving spouse? How long do I have to work in this godless job? How long will it take or will it be before I find a husband or a wife? When will my ship come in? Why won't you take away this cancer? When will this hurt stop over my loss? Why won't you relieve me from my loneliness? And God always answers, you know. It's just that sometimes we don't want to hear it the way that he answers it. You know how he answered Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. And I'm glad I'm not standing up here saying it, because I couldn't, but God can, because of Jesus.
You know what the word sufficient means? It means enough. Simple. It means enough. Webster defines it as enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. God's sufficiency is far more, however, than just enough to handle the situation. It's more than simply a bare bones, just enough to get by adequacy. It is tremendously more than that. J. Hudson Taylor said that there are three stages in the work of God. I love this. Impossible, difficult, done. Impossible, difficult, done. Nothing is impossible for God. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and to Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There are two ways to lighten the burdens that we carry. One is to diminish the actual weight of the load. The second is to strengthen the shoulders that bear it. God uses both. Generally, we only seek the first. Worse yet is the fact that much of today's preaching says that only the first is biblical. God answered Paul's prayer in a way he did not expect. He didn't eliminate the stake of suffering, but rather supplied the grace to endure it. The question we ought to be asking ourselves as Christians is not what is it that I'm going to have to bear, but what resource do I have available to me which will enable me to bear it? And God is the resource. Paul's comfort came every time he remembered God's words. My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for power is perfected in weakness. We sing it. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me. But when we sing it, are we singing it from experience? Are we just singing the words? Why would God remove the very thing in Paul's life that in the end not only benefited Paul and his relationship with God, but also opened the door of personal joy and spiritual maturity that Paul would never have experienced otherwise? Jamie Buckingham once wrote, God never brings a hindrance into our lives that he does not intend to be used to open another door that would not have opened otherwise. Why would God remove David Ring's handicap when he's, God is glorified so much by it? God's strength is magnified through that man's weakness. Why would God remove Johnny Erickson Tata's paralysis? Her phenomenal accomplishments are clearly not because of her own ability. God's power is made perfect by their weaknesses as they submit to him. But that's, that's the trick. You've got to submit it to God. Because we're not puppets and he's not going to force us. By their own admission, his grace is more than sufficient. Neither one of them are handicapped spiritually. They shine with the glory of God. Amen? Truth be known, by comparison, we're the handicapped ones. 
What problem or pain would you like God to remove from your life today? Maybe it's time to rethink that request. If he chooses not to remove it, find your comfort in his words that grace, my grace is sufficient for you. Because we all need to have a transformed perception of God's purpose for our pain, the preciousness of God's answer to our prayers. And thirdly, we need a transformed perception of God's perfection of power. Verse 9, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We've been saturated with the concept for years in America that bigger is better. The more something costs, the better it is. Size equals strength. The more eloquent the speaker, the more memorable the sermon, the more outgoing the person, the more souls they'll lead to Christ. All of that human wisdom is negated when we observe actually how God works. In God's wisdom, mercy triumphs over judgment. Love is stronger than hate. Silence sometimes speaks louder than shouting. Evil is overcome by good. And power is perfected in weakness. It's all upside down, topsy-turvy in God's world, isn't it? The power of God is magnified when it is filtered through the weaknesses of people. The greater the weakness in us, the more visible Christ's enabling strength becomes... No one is too weak in themselves to be powerful in Christ. Amen? But there are many too strong, many too strong in themselves to be powerful in Christ. When we think that we are doing God a favor because we're on his team, we become the weakest links in the chain, don't we? Spurgeon once put it this way, man's strength is more in God's way than man's weakness. God's power is being continually brought to maturity through the lives of those who are weak in themselves. That is an amazing and a glorious plan of God. Paul got the greatest pleasure out of that fact. No, he wasn't a masochist. He didn't get a thrill out of the abuse that this messenger of Satan gave to him. He didn't pride himself in the fact that he had more problems than the next guy. Oh, you think you got it bad. Well, let me tell you what happened to me this week. He just loved the idea that when his strength was completely gone and he was at the end of himself, God's power shined through him. God's glory was all over him. And that's one of the telltale signs of a true Christian. When you cut them, they bleed God's glory. Amen. The light pours out of them and it, it's like, like a sci-fi movie. When you cut, beams of light come out, right? The light pours out of them through the power of the Holy Spirit. You ever been around somebody like that? My wife and I privileged to meet Johnny Erickson Tata one year. Oh my goodness. It was like going into the presence of God not attributing any deity to any one human being. I'm just saying, you know when somebody's been through the ringer and God's perfected them in his power, when you get around them, it is transforming. I get chills just thinking about it. I hardly ever get that feeling around humanly polished, perfectly molded people. I don't know why I try so hard to be like that. That's my weakness. 
I know what A.W.'s Tozer said is true, that God will not use a man greatly till he hurts a man deeply. And I'm like, God, I want to be used, but I don't want to be hurt. Aren't we all like that? He doesn't always hurt. But everybody that I've ever been around that has that got that kind of atmosphere hovering around them have been hurt deeply and have gone through it holding the hand of God. These people are walking tabernacles. That's what I call them. God is in them. And whatever spotlights gets thrown on them, they immediately deflect it back to God. They are few and far between, but we have them in this church. Have you met them yet? They're usually the people who have been through the ringer, yet they've held God's hand all the way through it. Like I said, they speak to you, and you know that they have been with God. Don't you want that kind of power? Not, not so that people will point to you and say, he's one of those people. Or she's one of those people. Not at all. But that God might use you for him. You know what's going to take? It's going to take a complete change of the outlook on what you and I will be content with in this life. It means having a transformed perception of God's purposes for pain, God's answer to prayer, God's perfection of power. And finally, we need a transformed perception of God's principle of prosperity. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That kind of preaching doesn't get you well known today on the speaking circuit. It doesn't generate a massive following. Too many Christians seem to be under the impression that the highest expression of God's grace in your life is to be sheltered from all trouble. Notice what Paul was content with in this verse. Underline those things. He's content with weaknesses, insults, public humiliation, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, hardly what people would identify as the elements of successful ministry. In the agony of deceit, Michael Horton wrote this. He said, it is to trivialize greatly the work of Christ to suggest that God the Father sent his only son into the world to bear the world's blasphemy, insults, and violence, and most of all, to bear the Father's wrath, all for increased cash flow and fewer bouts with asthma. I love that. Talk about diminishing what Christ's sacrifice is. People need to get a grip. A grip on the teaching of God's word. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It was not the message of Peter when Peter wrote, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because of the spirit of glory rests on you. It wasn't the words of James who said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials and problems. And it wasn't on the lips of Jesus himself who proclaimed without apology in Luke chapter 6. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, who are, you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. That, that's, that brings us right down to the wire, doesn't it? So, so don't tell me the sermon was great after this service, okay? Just say, that was the worst thing I ever heard. And so I can be content in insults. No, seriously, I mean, these, these things fly right in the face of everything that we strive for, doesn't it? Let me ask you a question. With what are you content? What am I content with? How does your list line up with Paul's list? At the end of the matter, according to Paul, it's also simple in a statement, yet incredibly difficult in practice, right? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Or as the Phillips translation reads, for my very weakness makes me strong in him. As the message continues in the following verses, my grace is enough, it's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now, I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the message in a lot of texts, but I love that. What's making you weak today? What are the stakes that are impaling you today? Have you perceived them all wrongly? Maybe they're not designed to stop you from accomplishing great things for God. Maybe they're actually the very opportunities for him to show his power through you. Again, the old commentator Alexander McLaren said, the secret of all noble, heroic, useful, and happy life lies in the paradox, when I am weak, then I am strong. And the secret of all failures, miseries, and hopeless losses lies in its converse, when I am strong then I am weak. My friends, we're all bent nails in this church. We're all weak. We're all vulnerable. And we're all dependent upon one another at one point or another. Just like children. And that's just where God wants us because when we're at that point, we're ready to be used because power is perfected in weakness. So you all hopefully got yourself a bent nail when you came in. Take this bent nail that you have, that you received when you came in today. And carry it around with you all week. During shoulder to shoulder, if you're involved in that, or wherever you are, at your office, with your family, 
on vacation. And every time you feel it in your pocket or every time you see it on the dashboard of your car or wherever you put it, remember that God is in the business of using bent nails like us for his glory. Amen? Amen.